Good morning. I'm glad y'all are here. I hope y'all are ready to do some work this morning. I want to pray for your um, commitment to these next few minutes and your attentiveness. I want to pray for my clarity. Um, I want to pray, really. I feel like in some ways this is um, maybe the favorite, my favorite sermon I haven't preached yet, and, um, but maybe the most difficult to communicate and maybe the most difficult to hear but one that has the most treasure in it if we uh, pay attention. So I want to pray about how we spend these next few minutes that we are blameless and attentive in, uh, in a way that only the Holy Spirit can muster. Let's pray. Lord, first this morning I want to pray for the, uh, the churches and the connections that were made this week in the For the City uh, ministry, Lord. I want to pray that we want to pray that those seeds that were sown uh, as folks uh, connected to one another and hopefully folks were able to share the gospel as they ministered to other folks in need, that, Lord, those would take root and uh, that your kingdom would be expanded and grown and furthered as a result of the time spent in, those, uh, in that ministry, Lord. I pray for those churches that participated in that. Lord, I pray that they are celebrating uh, a great work this week and we are entrusting their work to you. Thankful for the chance to lift them up. Lord, I also this morning, I want to pray for these next few minutes, um, sense of um, gravity about uh, what we're doing here in these next few minutes, and also a sense of even concern about the, uh, the challenge that we're uh, participating in, in uh, connecting to such a large piece of scripture. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to work and speak and move and... Uh, to make much of your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to the book of Job, chapter 3. I'm hoping this morning that you're about ready to meet the friends. We have been on a journey in the book of Job the last couple of months, and we've met this man named Job. We've gotten to know him pretty well. Uh, we found that he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, sons of the East, is what chapter 1 says about him. We found that God said of him that there is none like him. There's none like him, said that he is blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That's not a narrator, narrator's perspective. That's actually God's perspective on this man named Job. Job was super blessed. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 female donkeys. This guy was the poster boy for the beauty of Proverbs. That if you honor God, man... God will bless you. He is the walking billboard of that. Poster boy for the blessings of Proverbs until he wasn't. What's special, I think, about the book of Job is that, and I think why it's counted among the wisdom books, is we have a unique vantage point in the book of Job. We don't just have a story about a guy. We have the opportunity to actually to stick our head. I use this visual like a bunch of giraffes with really long supernatural necks. We're able to stick our head up into the throne room and to hear the, what goes down in the divine court and the divine council where there twice we're actually privy to a conversation between God and Satan. We know a lot more about Job than his friends do. We know a lot more about Job than Job knew at the time. We know about this conversation, times two, that took place between God and Satan, where Satan accuses Job of really being a mercenary, that he's really just in it for the loot. 
He just loves you for the goods, God. He doesn't love you really for who you are. And in fact, if you take all those goods away, you take away his family, you take away even his health, he will curse you to his face. That's what Satan promised. That's what Satan claimed. And God said, okay, Satan, knock yourself out. Be all you can be. Go thus far and no farther. And then again, go thus far and no farther. You can't take his life, but you can take everything else. So Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his critters. He lost his servants. He lost his place in what was probably kind of a micro kingdom. He lost his health. And last Sunday, the Sunday before last, the last Sunday we were in Job, we found Job sitting in ashes, lamenting the day that he was even born, wishing that it was just erased from the calendar. Today we're going to meet his friends. I use air quotes every time I use that term friends, but it's a word that comes directly from the passage. So let's meet these three friends in chapter 3, verse 11. Actually, yeah, chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great." These three friends that we're going to spend the next couple of weeks with this morning and then two more Sundays, Elihu, Bildad, and Zophar, were likely somehow connected to Job's kingdom. In some ways, you get the sense over the course of the story that they must have been maybe dukes or earls within his kingdom. They may have been other micro-kings neighboring Job's kingdom, but you get the sense that they somehow have a vested interest in Job's restoration. There's a lot at stake for what's happening to Job has an overflow, it seems, and an impact on these three, Elihu, Bildad, and Zophar. These next few chapters that start in begin, beginning in chapter 4 and go all the way through chapter 31 are a series of dialogues between these three men and Job, and it's really an opportunity to really get lost in the book of Job. And I think about the number of times that I've committed to reading the book of Job, this is the place where I bailed. It's a sea of back and forth, and it's really, really difficult to make sense of. But there actually is a pattern here, and the pattern is what's going to guide us this week and the next two weeks. There's a pattern of three cycles of dialogues where these friends engage Job over the course of 27 chapters. This morning, we're going to consider the first of those cycles in chapters 4 through 14. That's where we'll be this morning. And you understand why I say it's a daunting task to tackle that section of Scripture. What I plan on doing this morning is in these chapters, chapter 4 through 14, is get a sense of what's going on in these dialogues. Get a sense of the themes. Get a sense of the message that these guys are sharing with Job and the tone of how it's shared and then Job's consistent response. I think we can walk away with something that will really travel 
the patterns, the way they unflow or the, the way they unfold and flow in each of these dialogues is one friend speaks and then Job responds, then the next friend speaks and Job responds and so forth. And that's mostly true, all three of these cycles, except for the last one that gets a little bit truncated. And I want to make you a promise at this point. The dialogues feel like no man's land. And there's likely a part of this sermon that will feel like no man's land. That will feel like, what does this have to do with me? And I promise you that's by design. I promise you that if you will go the distance and if you will maybe even take notes, maybe do some things that you don't typically do so that you can truly engage it, there will be a real blessing in it. I think you're going to find a real beauty in it. If you tune in to what feels monotonous and may even feel irrelevant, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. So let's go ahead and climb into this first dialogue. Really, there's three rounds this morning, and I've kind of envisioned them like a, a martial arts movie where these guys are taking turns on this one guy. And thankfully, they don't call, come at one time. You know, you're watching the movie. You're saying, why don't you all attack him at once, and then you can really kill him. But they come one at a time, so that's the way this thing goes down. First with Eliphaz, then with Bildad, and then with Zophar. So round one in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Eliphaz speaks after Job's lament of chapter 3. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you've instructed many and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you've made firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? You get the sense right off the bat here as Eliphaz gets this party started that who can keep from speaking after your lament that Eliphaz is not fond of lamentation? How dare you, Job, lament the day of your birth? So this guy, Eliphaz, speaks the friends so far, if you really think about what friends should do when someone's hurting, they were silent for seven days. They're looking at the outset. When we first met them over there in chapter 2, as I read this morning, they're silent for seven days. That's profound. If I could spend seven minutes or an hour or seven hours with someone who's really hurting, that would be a profound commitment of friendship. So you get the sense right off the bat, these guys are true friends. Seven days of silence with Job, but then... Eliphaz speaks one word, one chapter of lament from Job, and Eliphaz can't stand it anymore. So he speaks. He butters him up with a few words of encouragement. Hey, you've strengthened weak knees. Now it's time for me to strengthen you. You get the sense? Ah, maybe we're off to a great start here. And then in verse 7, you see a theme that emerges from Eliphaz and a theme that emerges from the friends. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is a theme from these guys and a theme from Eliphaz. And it's the essence of his message. The innocent don't perish. It's the guilty who sow trouble that reap trouble. So Job, you do the math. These terrible things are happening to you, Job. So... You do the math. In some ways, what he's saying is good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And that's really the way the world works, it seems, right? That's what we tell our children often. That's what we 
Tell our students in class, you work hard, you're going to have a great outcome. We tell our employees, you work hard, you're going to get a raise, you're going to get promoted. That's the way things work, it seems, until it doesn't. It seems this encouragement and this counsel from Eliphaz would be wise counsel, except when it's not and except when it's wrong, as in this case. Because remember, we're giraffes. We can poke our head in the divine counsel, and we know otherwise. We know he's not the guilty. We know this is not due to some sin in his life, some issue in his life, some unrepentant matter in his life that has resulted in this catastrophic series of events. We know otherwise that he is, in fact, what God said, blameless and upright. It's a unique perspective. I think this feedback from Eliphaz, this counsel from Eliphaz is our natural inclination that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, except when they don't. Something that's interesting about this guy, Eliphaz, this word that he gave us is sort of a universal proverb, Christian or not, religious or not, is sort of a universal proverb for life. But the interesting where he gets the source, it's interesting where it comes from. In this chapter, we find that he had a little messenger that gave him this insight. Look at verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me. This is Eliphaz still speaking. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake, a spirit glided past my face and the hair of my flesh stood up. It's like a horror movie. Here's where I got my message from a spirit that made me tremble, a spirit that made my bones shake. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice, and this is what this creepy spirit had to say to Eliphaz. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. I'm going to tell you right now, this counsel from Eliphaz, you look at it first blush, it would be a great application of lots of sermons from this pulpit that weren't wrong. No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, right? We hear these words from Eliphaz and we say, yeah, can mortal man be in the right before God? But remember, we are giraffes. We're able to look into the throne room and the divine council and we know that he was, in fact, what God said, blameless and upright. We know that what this this spirit is saying to Eliphaz is actually the same message that Satan said. He's guilty. Take his stuff away and you'll find out what he's really made of. He can't stand righteous and pure before God. Take it all away and you'll find out. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. Is that the kind of father that we have? Damascus, I'm glad you're shaking your head because that's not the father that you have sitting next to you. And that's not the kind of father that we have. That's a bad message. That's the message of a God that's this cosmic killjoy that's just waiting to crush you like a worm. That's just tolerating the whole sinful lot of us. That came from a a trembling, a spirit that made him tremble in the middle of the night. 
And I don't think that was a God spirit. I think it's clear where that spirit came from because he's working with Satan. He's accusing Job of wrongdoing, but we know otherwise, don't we? So that's Eliphaz's counsel. That's Eliphaz's words. Job, you're guilty. A terrifying spirit told me so. Now, Job's response, look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. We're going to look for some themes from Job and the way he responds to these three guys. In chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Oh, that I might have my request and that God will fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me. It sounds like chapter 3, his lament. I wish I'd never existed, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This, this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. This is a theme from Job that you're going to see throughout our morning, that you're going to see throughout the book. This man is holding fast to his integrity. He is not admitting to wrongdoing. That's huge for the morning. You're going to miss the whole morning if you can't see that. He is refusing to admit to wrongdoing. In verses 14 and 15, he begins to share what he thinks of these friends. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You want to consider the kind of friend that you are to others? That's a great place to live. He who forsakes kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass by. This is the kind of friends that you guys are. Treacherous friends. And in verse 26, he says of something that is sort of obscure. Our passage sort of makes it say that, seem like he's saying the opposite. But in the context of the book, he's describing what he's getting from these guys, what he's hearing from these guys as wind. Look at verse 26 of chapter 6. Do you think that you can reprove with words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Now in the Hebrew, what's parallel there is reproof and wind. The Hebrew here is ambiguous, and it seems contextually that what he's saying about them is their words are wind. Do you remember the unique role of wind in the book of Job? It tears down houses. It hits in four cardinal directions on one house and crushes seven sons and three daughters. And here's the reality that Job is saying over the course of the rest of this book is the wind is still blowing, and the wind is being blown through his bad friends. You think the catastrophes end at the end of chapter 3? No, the wind keeps blowing. And what is probably most catastrophic, beyond losing his family, beyond losing his servants, beyond losing his property, beyond losing his place, is what has happened to his friends. Man, they're no friends at all. They're treacherous. Maybe it's the most hurtful thing when friends aren't good friends. So that's round one. The takeaway from round one is... Eliphaz says, the innocent don't perish. So Job, you do the math. The takeaway from Job is that he's holding fast to his integrity. He will not admit to wrongdoing. So let's go into round two. Ding, ding. Let's look at what Bildad has to, has to say in chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? See, he accuses Job of wind. I know you are, but what am I? Is basically what's going down right there. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. 
Okay, it may be kind of obscure. It's an unfamiliar passage if you haven't read Job. But really what he's saying there is, you know what? If your sons and your daughters died, Job, it's because they deserved it. Man, what a pal. Right? What a, what a great friend. Thank you so much, Bill Dad. What a strong encouragement that is to me as I sit in ashes with boils all over my body. Man, ad hominem attacks are easy. And that's what goes down right here. Let's just make it personal. He insinuates in the rest of the chapter and what he says to Job there that, you know what, ultimately it's your, your fault. It's your words that led to their deaths. Listen to what he says in verse 5 of chapter 8. He says, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. This is another theme. The first theme was good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. The righteous don't perish, and you're perishing, so you do the math. That's the first one. Here's the second one. If Job would just seek God, God would bless him. Right? Man, anybody ever really experienced that? You know, that's that's true about 98% of the time, but then there's 2% of the time where you're like, God, where are you? Right? This is true most of the time until it isn't. This is the second theme from his friends. Just seek him, and he'll make it all better. Right? Anybody ever sought him in the middle of a divorce and found themselves divorced? Anybody ever sought him in the middle of a sickness and lost someone? Man, it's right until it's not. But this is the message from Bildad and the second theme from the friends. Just seek him and he'll make it all better. That's pretty much true until it's not. The Israelites lived for 400 years in Egypt. Most of them being slaves calling out to God, but they weren't experiencing, they weren't to experience the exodus until it was God's timing. Man, can you imagine the number of moms and dads that called out for God saying, God, where are you? It's true until it isn't. Job's response to Bildad. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 21. We're in the second round here. We're almost through the second round. Then we move into the third round, and then we're going to walk away with something awesome. Job's response to Bildad, chapter 9, verse 21. He says, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Remember the themes from Job? This is the theme you're going to see. I am not guilty in this. I am blameless, and I'm holding fast to my integrity. I am blameless. He says, it is all one, or it is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Now, this may be the most difficult truth of the morning. And I want you to hear this passage. This is Job, a man who did not sin with his lips when he represented and spoke about God. This is what he says about God. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Maybe the most difficult truth of the morning that Job recognizes that this little formula 
Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people leaves no room for God to be God. Right? It becomes a chemistry equation, a science experiment. If I do this, then this happens. But where's God in all that? He recognizes that leaves no place for God to be God because God does sometimes destroy the blameless as he destroys the wicked. We should know that. We're walking in the gospel that's proof of that. He does, in fact, destroy the blameless because he's God and he's wise and he can make a pot for honorable use and he can make another pot for common use and he can do that because he's God. The same God who made the firstborn of Israel made the firstborn of Egypt, if you know the story of the Exodus. The same God that made the Israelites made the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Philistines. Same God. The same God who formed Jacob formed Esau in the same womb. Man, I think about it as a dad of two visually impaired kids. A passage that's ministered to me over the years. Who made man's mouth? Who made him deaf or mute? Is it not I, the Lord? It gave Christy and I a place to reckon. Who do we reckon with we're? Who do we blame? Do we blame Satan or do we go to the creator who knitted them together in the womb that for some reason left something out? Man, put it on God. That's a great place to start. Is it not I, the Lord? So round two, sort of the takeaways, the second theme that we met. The first theme was good things happen to good people, good, bad things happen to bad people. Here's the second theme. If you'll just seek God, it'll all be all right. Right? And then Job's response He's holding fast to his integrity. He hasn't moved. Okay, round three. Ding. Chapter 11 with Zophar. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? He's speaking to Job here. Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. What a pal. Yet another really good buddy here. Job, what you're going through is less than you deserve. Do you hear that? Well, so far, man, you're stroking it out of the park with that, that counsel. That, that is, that's awesome. And then later on, he, he, he develops a picture in verse 10 and 11. Listen to what he says. If he passes through and, through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? What he's saying there is that we are a summoned court. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. We are the court. We are the witnesses, and we are the judge, and we are the jury. And Job, you're the worthless man that's in our courtroom. <laughs> wow, things are really going well with these friends. And I get the sense here that we all know very well what's going down here is people love a scapegoat. It helps you, make, helps you feel better about your own guilt when you can find someone else to really find guilty. When you can find someone else to criticize and someone else to attack, man, it makes your guilt really invisible, doesn't it? 
And Zophar's message is like the others. Look at verse 13, just like the others. Really, he just is singing a different verse of the same song. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hands, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. If you'll just seek him, everything's going to be okay, Job. Verses 16. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there's hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. Man, he's going to bless you and you're going to lie down in peace if you'll just fess up to being guilty. Job. And then in verse 20, he says, But the eyes of the wicked will fail. Blindness is a result of sin. That's what the disciples said in John 9, right? Who? Who sinned? This man or his father that he's born blind. That's the way we think. Bad stuff happens to bad people. That's the message of these three friends. Eyes of the wicked will fail and all way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Man, what a great encouragement, these guys. And Job's response in verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Finishing up round 3. Job's response to Zophar. It's not thank you so much for the sage counsel, my good friends. Thank you so much. I'm just going to say I'm guilty so we'll just be able to move on because I'm sure I've done something wrong. So let me just own some form of guilt so that I can take your sage counsel, great friends. That's not what he says. Instead, let's see what he says here in chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. I love sarcasm. I love especially when it's biblical sarcasm. Thank you so much. It gives me a little room for being sarcastic every now and again. And I see it right here. Man, wisdom is going to die with you three jokers. Wow. I'm so blessed to have you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. Man, there it is again, that theme. Job still holds fast to his integrity. He still contends that he's just and blameless, man. This guy won't move. Listen to what he says about his buddies in chapter 13. Verse 3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. He wants a courtroom experience, but he wants to speak to God directly. And you can see that as a theme. He says, As for you, you three who have held court on me, you whitewash with lies. You are worthless physicians, you all. You're a bunch of quacks. Your medicine's bad medicine. It's not helping me at all. It's just plain bad medicine. And then Job calls out to God, which is really a Godward message throughout these dialogues. You hear him addressing each of these guys, but you hear him speaking to God. A passage that's near and dear to this church, especially if you live through this period of the McCords. In verse 15 of chapter 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Man, that's Job's consistent plea. I'm blameless in this, and I want to see God. So at the end of round three, let's take stock of what we've gathered. Zophar basically says that God's court has been summoned 
and we found you guilty. And then Job's response, I am a just and blameless man. I want to gather up the themes so we can try and figure out what to do with this. We've really done the hard work, and y'all have been very attentive, and I'm so grateful because I think you're in for a treat here in a moment. But let's just gather up the themes. First of all, the friends' themes. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to good people, or bad people. And you do the math, Job. All this bad stuff's happening to you. What does it say about you? The second theme, seek God's face, and he'll make it all better. (laughs) That's all but saying he's like a genie, minus the lamp. Seek God's face and he'll make it all better. And sadly, they convey this message to this man who's lost everything in a way that is destructive, personal, and they are a catastrophic wind. Yet another one. It's still blowing, mocking, jeering, prodding, accusing a court summoned by God or a court influenced by a deceitful spirit. That's the theme of the friends. And here's Job's theme. (laughs) I am innocent. I am blameless. I am upright. And I'll sit here in these ashes with boils all over my body and I ain't moving. Man. Awesome. I love it. I love it. So what, what are we to do with this? You know what? How's this supposed to help us? I hope at this point you're thinking, okay, we've done the work, so what do we do with this? It's a great question. Maybe this could encourage us to be better friends and not so quick to critique and criticize. Right? I mean, that's a lob. Okay, we can look at that and say, yes, what a great application of this. We want to be good friends. Okay, you wouldn't be wrong. I'd call that a devotional application. Here's another application that might be a good devotional. Maybe it could teach us to sit in silence with the hurting and just shut it. Even when they lament. Right? That, that's a nice devotional application. I mean, I love it. That's, I love devotional, good, beautiful devotional applications. I grew up here and my dad said, there's a sermon in that. And I said, no, dad, it's actually more of a devotional. There's a devotional right there. Okay? It's beautiful. Here's another devotional. Maybe it could teach us that when we're not guilty, to stay the course and not just say you're guilty in hopes of moving on. Anybody ever done that? It's a false reconciliation. It's a false restoration. It's Band-Aids over cancer. Man, those aren't bad, but those are devotional points. But I think you came for a sermon, didn't you? I hope you came for a sermon and not three devotions. I came to preach a sermon and not to share some devotion. So let's figure out what the sermon is here. Let me just first of all set the stage for this sermon, this application of this sermon that really, you can go ahead and turn. Actually, I don't want you to turn yet, but I want you to be ready to turn somewhere. It's where we're going to land this morning. Let me just prepare you with this thought. This book right here, okay, this thing, not just the book of Job, but this whole thing, this thing is not about you. I don't want to be ugly saying that. But I want you to hear me when I'm telling you. It's not about you. This book's about someone else. Man, you can learn a lot of great stuff about yourself in here. It is a mirror. You hold it up and you go, oh, I'm guilty. Oh, I need a savior. Awesome. But the book is not about you. We read this book like it's 
a biography, and technically it would be an autobiography that we're reading about someone else, and the whole time we're saying, well, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? How, do I, how does this apply to my life? You're reading an autobiography. What's wrong with you? You read an autobiography about someone else to enjoy who that person is because they're fascinating. <sighs> how about we read this book instead of looking for tips, looking for things that will help our lives be better so we can figure ourselves out. But we look in this book, we peer in this book so we can figure out who it's about so that we may know them. Oh, that changes everything. <laughs> that, ch that changes everything as we read Job then. Maybe instead of looking for tips to how we can treat our friends. Again, not a bad thing. Instead of looking for some insights and maybe how we can make our lives better. Maybe we should try and figure out what God is saying about himself and who he's ultimately making much of. Man, see, here's where this sermon is going. As you heard this story and this back and forth with Job, was there anything in you that was thinking, this sounds familiar? There's something in this that's really familiar and I can't really put my finger on it. There's something going down here that... Wasn't there someone else who was blameless and righteous and yet suffered surrounded by his friends? Wasn't there someone else who was accused? Man, it seemed like there was someone else that was mocked. Someone else that was blown by the winds of catastrophe. Now turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, it's where we're going to land this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Man, we could insert some images, couldn't we? I sit here with boils covered from the crown of my head to the sole of my feet. I've lost everything. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Sound familiar? That's where we left off two weeks ago. The decreation week, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and your fathers, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. 
Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Yeah, it's a familiar story, isn't it? It's a familiar story, the pain of those who claim to be friends of God surrounding the righteous and blameless, accusing and mocking and insulting and ultimately crucifying. Here I sit in ashes covered in boils, a worm and not a man, scorned and despised, mocked, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Many bulls surround me, the strong bulls of Bashan. Jeers from the courts and the crowds. Familiar? Hey, Job, I mean, uh, Jesus, the innocent don't perish, so you do the math. Caiaphas says, you're guilty. You're guilty. The crowd says, you know, give us Barabbas instead of this worm. Pilate asks, what evil has he done? And the crowd responds, crucify him. Yeah, it's a familiar story. Hey, Job, call out to God. He'll save you. Sound familiar? But you know what's awesome? I hope something in you was cheering for Job as we went through this dialogue this morning. Maybe not because we identify with Job as another man, just one of us, and we're going, man, surely you've done something wrong, right? <laughs> I mean, we know ourselves, just fess up to something. But if you really see him as a Christ figure, then something in you begins to cheer for him. Don't give in, Job. Don't give it up. Don't say you're guilty when you're not because you're representing Christ. You're a prefigure of Christ, and like Christ, you got to hold fast to your integrity all the way to and through the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus is the finest son of the east and the west and the north and the south. He's blameless and upright who fears God and turns away from evil. He holds fast when tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Give it up. This is all it'll take. He holds fast when facing the travail of the cross. Man. You hear his words, though he slay me, I will trust him. If this cup can pass from me, please do so, but not my will but yours. He holds fast when his friends nail him to a cross. Man, Job is a treasure. It's a window into the person and work of our Savior. This book isn't about you people. It's about Jesus. Faith is not about it. It's a list of do's and don'ts and tips and things you got to do to get through the week. It's about a relationship with this living Savior that 
reigns and rules and is seated and living, who we're talking about this morning, who we had a window into through the person of Job. Man. You thought this was a Job study this morning? It was a Jesus study. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to teach our youth. Um, Neil Payne and I were teaching our youth on Job. And this lesson that turned into a sermon this morning was on the Wednesday before Easter. And I described this passage to our youth as kind of that no man's land in a long trip. Those miles that you just have to get through to get to where you really want to go. And I prepared the lesson that way and I was kind of in this like, well, it just kind of is. I've got to get through. And I was sitting on my couch about 540. Lesson started at 6. I'm sitting on my couch at my house looking over my notes. I said, man, something reminds me of Psalm 22. And I didn't even read it. I just jotted it down on my page. And what unfolded at 6 was worship for a room full of people. As we were all were surprised. I couldn't get through it. I'm surprised I got through it this morning. I'll be better in the next service. I couldn't get through it. What a window. What a treasure into the person and work of Christ. We enjoyed him. I hope you've enjoyed him this morning. He's pretty awesome. Let's pray. God, what a great Savior. What a great Savior we have. What unseen suffering that I've not had a view of, that I feel like I hope we have a view of now, is the pain that came from his friends. Those you called out of Egypt. Those that you sustained in the wilderness. Those that you gave victory through the battles of Jericho and the conquests. Those that you drew back from the exiles. Those are the ones that crucified your son. The pain of friends turning on our Savior. God, I'm thankful that he held fast to his integrity. We are thankful for this picture in Job as he held fast. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. We're thankful that he went to the cross sinless. Paying a price that we couldn't pay. We're thankful. We're praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a passage in, in uh, Job that's one of my favorites that I think will be our passage for the supper. And it was in a, in a chapter that we were in this morning, but I was saving it for the supper because it's one that I think is answered in the person and work of Christ. We felt this pain of Job over these last few months. We've sort of climbed into this agony that he's felt and this distance between God, he and God. God, where did you go? Erase me if you're not in this thing. I need you. I want to see your face is the sense that you have This where he's pining for God. And then in chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, he pines for something. He pines for something that we have. And I should say specifically, he pines for someone that we have. 
He says, for he is not a man, he's speaking of God, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. He wants to see God. He is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. There's no mediator. There's no go-between between me, this creature, and this God, this creator. He pines for a mediator and an arbiter. And here's what we have in the person work of Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man at the same time. Man, that's who we have. The person that Job pined for, the person that he needed, that he wanted to intercede and mediate for him is the person that we enjoy week after week after week as a Savior who laid his his hand on us both. Fully man and fully God. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He paid the price that we couldn't pay. He died a death that we deserved. And he overcame death for us and is seated and reigning and ruling. Let's distribute these elements and enjoy this awesome Savior.